Here we go. True or false? When they had on Tuesday of the Passion Week, the Jewish leaders are desirous to ask Jesus all kinds of questions. Their goal is to trap him. Yes or no? That is absolutely true. In these discussions, none of the Jewish leaders who questioned him were moved at all by his words in the debates. They, they didn't change their mind, is what I'm after. They weren't impressed by anything that Jesus said. They all remained steadfastly against him. True or false? That is false, okay? We're going to see today that one of the fellows even is moved, and Jesus says, you are not that far away from the kingdom of heaven. And that guy came initially to trap him. Here we go. After that Tuesday, all these questions, after he silenced the leaders, what did Jesus do? Go back to Bethany, um, right as the debates were done, ask them questions, remain in the temple for prayer, or publicly denounce them. We haven't gotten there. We're getting there today. Which one do you think it is? Which one? But he does at the end of the day, okay, but not right away. He does publicly denounce them, and there's another one. He asks them questions. He turns the table after they've asked questions. He asks them questions and turns the table on them, and then he publicly denounces them. The story is in Matthew 22, 23. That's where we're headed. In Matthew 22, 23, if you have your notes, let's jump into this, and we'll also get over to Mark chapter 12, and hopefully that'll help us. We are Tuesday of the Passion Week. Jesus is teaching in the temple. In the course of his teaching, he's going to have these debates. The different leaders come up, the Jewish leaders, and they come in different groups at first and they're coming and they're going to ask him questions. Their goal and their thought is we're going to ask him questions that there's no way he's going to be able to answer. And when you go through and you start, it's interesting the questions they ask. The ones who come that asking the questions about authority are the people who are really big on authority. That they really quote a lot of people. It's the religious group that they think you better have authority or you, know, you better quote the right guys or nobody's going to listen to you. It's the Pharisees. The ones who ask about the taxes are the Jewish group that is associated with uh, the Romans and King Herod. Do you remember what we call those guys? The Herodians, okay? They are the, uh, they are the compromisers. And then the ones who come and ask about the resurrection, do you remember which group that is? Sadducees. And the reason that it's interesting they ask about the resurrection is... They don't even believe in it, okay? <laughs> they doubt it whatsoever. So the Sadducees, they come and they're going to ask him about this gal who has died. Um, actually, she's married seven brothers, and in the course of being wedded to them, they all die. She's a tough woman, okay? They all die off, and then their question is, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And so they're not asking with sincerity because they don't believe in this. They don't believe that People, when they die, are in the spirit realm. They, they kind of lend towards the annihilation or soul sleep idea. So there's no relationship and there's no resurrection. And they even deny angels. And they, even, they would even question miracles. So the miracles that Jesus did, they would be the modern-day um, liberals who would try to explain it all away. And kind of basically, it's all up to us. And so these guys come and they ask the question, and in the question that they're asking, they're picking on the area of the doctrine of the resurrection, and understand in those days that it was very common, even amongst the Jewish mindset, that when they described the resurrection, it was going to be a period where kind of similar to the Islamic idea today. That Middle East idea that when you get into the resurrection, you're going to be able to satisfy all your different appetites. So the things that would be very predominant in the resurrection would, you would be able to eat and not gain weight. Now, wouldn't that be a delight? 
Okay, you can drink and drink and satisfy and probably not get falling down drunk. And there would be another part of that satisfying physical appetites would be sex, okay, the sensual part. And so even like the Islams have today in that idea that there's going to be those, you know, those different versions for the guys who, have, who died in their martyrdom. Well, the Jews had a little bit of that concept that in the resurrection we're going to satisfy and there's not going to be any problems and so we'll live at that type of satisfying our, our, our desires and that's going to be part of the glory of the resurrection. And so the Sadducees don't believe in any of this and they found that teaching kind of reprehensible. The same as some of you sitting here today. When you hear that you go, really? Really? That eternity is all about sex? Really? Um, and so that's their, that was their reaction. So they don't think it's a truth and so they're kind of asking a question that's going to be mocking that whole idea like who's, who is she going to satisfy? You know, when they say whose wife, who does she, who is she going to be assigned to those of those seven brothers for eternity? And so they're uh, they're asking with the idea to trap him, trick him, and quite frankly, they're they're trying to make his doctrines, his teachings look foolish. And remember, now Jesus has talked a lot about the resurrection. He has even said just days before this, I am the resurrection and the life. Okay, in John chapter 11. So, and uh, since these guys did not believe in, in Scripture being inspired beyond the first five books, the books of Moses, they didn't see the word resurrection. They didn't see that concept in those first five books, so that's why they doubted it. And so they're basically challenging him, and they're going to be basically saying, you know, prove it from Scriptures. You can't find the resurrection in the first five books. Now, Jesus answers, and he's going to answer in a very, very wise fashion. Now, part of their question is based on those first five books. There is a, a woman who we know that, Lever, that uh, Leviticus or Leverite type of an idea, if the brother dies without a child, that, I'm, uh, that the next brother is supposed to take the widow to wife and raise up a child unto his brother's name. So they do that. Part of the story that they create is not fanciful. It comes from their folklore. He's standing here. Standing here this morning, he was getting. Uh, he told me that he had read this story in Tobit uh, not too long ago, and he said that the story in Tobit talks about this woman with her with her seven husbands, and in order to get rid of the uh, the what they what they concluded is the priest concluded she has a demon, an evil spirit. That's what's killing off the husbands. And in order to get rid of it, they had to do some type of snake oil type of uh, medicinal and incantations in order to purge her of that evil spirit. And so the story is more involved in Tobit than just the idea of the seven, seven brothers marrying one woman. Uh, it's, there's demonic forces. Now, I found that interesting because do the Sadducees even believe in demonic forces? No, they don't accept any angelic world. And they're going to one of their folklore tales that was very common and very popular at that time. And they use that. And Jesus would be familiar with it. The crowds would be familiar. And some of those who are skeptical would say that was a very fanciful story. It was folklore. Others are saying this is legendary. And so they use it and Jesus is going to respond. And when he responds, keep in mind, by the way, just as an aside, many of the Many of the Jewish writings that they did limit ladies. They told rabbis, Sadducees, let's limit people who have, um, whose spouses have died. If two of them have died or three, no more marriage after that. The reason being was what? Jewish thinking. Think of Jews back in that day. Why does evil happen to people? 
because they sin. Who hath, you know, Jesus has to deal with that in John 9. This man, you know, who hath sinned? This man or his, remember the blind man? They assumed he sinned or who did? His parents. Okay, that's Jewish thinking. Jewish thinking is if anything bad happens, it's some type of judgment for personal sin. Now, you and I know it's judgment for sin as a whole. That's the consequence. But not every tragedy is based on God judging somebody. And when we talked about that a few uh, weeks ago, we even pointed out that there was one woman that uh, her child had, uh, had grown up and gotten sick as an adult, and they went all the way back in their writings. They were writing about how she had gone through a grove of idols as a young teenage girl, and she was not appalled or found it reprehensible to walk through this grove of idols, and therefore her child, gener- uh, you know, decades later, got sick and died or had some type of a serious disease, and it was her fault because of as a teenager, she had done something like that. And so that's ingrained in their mind. So the Jews had it that if somebody's, some people are dying off, and even that folk story, that folklore story, that woman, that fits their thinking. That woman had some type of demon. That's why her husbands are dying off. And it's, she's a dangerous woman to be around. And so they're, they're using this story, and they're in, it's in that concept. Jesus' response is twofold. He's going to say you make a mistake in two ways. Do you, do you read this? Okay, if you hop in the story, he accuses them of, uh, of making two major mistakes here in their Bible understanding and in their, through their question, where he uh, points out that he says, and let me catch where I'm at, um, he says in verse 29, in verse tw- uh, chapter 22, you do err in two areas. What are the two mistakes that he says you're making? You do not understand or you err in these two ways. You don't know Scripture. You don't recognize the power of God. So he's going right for the juggler in his response. He's going to point out, you don't understand your Bible. You don't, uh, you know, you don't, here's, here's why. In the Torah, is there evidence in the Torah that God can bring bodies out of dirt? Yes or no? When? The Torah, the first five books. Okay, in the beginning, in the creation, can God bring, a, bring, bring a, a, a physical body out of inert matter? God can do that. God can do that. And then he can breathe life into that inert matter. So their doctrine, you know, that's where they don't know Scripture, plus they're denying the power of God when it comes to a resurrection. Okay, because they're attacking God's ability to be able to bring back bodies that have turned back to dust. And so he's going to go there. He's going to attack that. And then he quotes a passage of Scripture. He goes to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, and it's a conversation that Moses has with, uh, with God. And he, God is saying, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your fathers. And Jesus is going to use that in two different ways, okay? Jesus is going to be showing, obviously, God's eternality, but Jesus highlights this idea. Uh, it seems to be the way he's pointing it out to them, that when he uses the I am, he's considering, not saying, I was the God of those people, I was the God when those guys were, were alive, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and whatever, is implying present tense that they, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are still what? Toward, with God. They're alive. They're alive. And so the implication is they're alive. They aren't, they aren't annihilated. They aren't ha- having to stop. Somebody asked me, by the way, just in the last couple of weeks, somebody said, don't you think that the Bible gives the possibility that when people die, they just cease to exist, especially the lost? 
that the lost do because it says that they are, they are going to be destroyed. Therefore, doesn't that imply that they are going to be totally put out of existence after they die if they've not been saved? By the way, if that is true, if that were true, would that be better than being in an eternal hell? It really would. It really would. Okay, and so what, is, what is your biblical response to that? The word says that uh, that's used, that, and Peter uses that, that they would be destroyed. Okay? How would you respond to that, that somebody says, well, maybe there's a possibility of annihilation rather than eternal suffering? Well, the consequence would be Annihilation. Their, their idea, okay, you're responding to that, but the argument back would be, well, there is consequence. You're put out of existence as opposed to those who did repent, they would have existence. And so they would view that the consequence would be annihilation as opposed to eternal damnation and suffering. Yeah. Well, that's what they're talking about, is after that, the judgment is going to be annihilation. Okay, okay, you got, you got all the passages in Scripture that indicate there is a hell, and what, and what word usually goes with it? Eternal damnation, you know, that there will be, no, be no ceasing of the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Another thought, okay, that goes right along with what Jonathan just said. Other thought is, what was the penalty? Did Jesus pay the penalty for sin? Okay, if the penalties for sin was annihilation, then what should have happened to Jesus? He should have been annihilated if that is the ultimate penalty, right? Okay, so he didn't get annihilated. Instead, what did he suffer? He suffered the ultimate penalty is separation from the Father. Okay, and he suffered that. And being an infinite being, he could suffer in a finite fashion that entire penalty. So looking at it and saying the words in the Scriptures indicate eternal, eternal, eternal damnation, weeping and gnashing of teeth, that hell is a real entity um, in, that, in that regard, and as well, Jesus paid the full penalty. But if you want to make it more, you, more palatable, and by the way, that is the movement right now. In a lot of the evangelical quote-unquote seminaries, they're starting to teach annihilation as opposed to eternal damnation and suffering. Because it's less... What word do you want to put there? Yeah, it's not as horrible to think that your relatives are forever and ever suffering. It's kind of like, I, I, I don't mean to be so coarse, but it's kind of like with your pet that's suffering. What do you do? Put them out of their misery. And it's kind of like put those people out of their misery instead of eternal suffering in damnation. And yet the Bible's very clear about it that, that's, that, you know, that that idea of destroyed doesn't necessarily mean annihilated for eternity. But be that as it may, God is tied, Jesus is saying God is the God of the living. And so he makes that comment and he uses that and he, and he follows it up. If you look in Matthew chapter 22 where he makes and concludes his discussion in verse 32, that seems to be where Jesus is making his application. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God is not the God of the dead but of the living. And using that present tense. So he is using, what's interesting in his response, he's giving good theology, where does he pull his answer from that indicates life after death? Which part of the scriptures? Think of your audience that he's dealing with. 
the first five books and he brings the answer out of the first five books which is the, the books that they believe in. So he's using their scriptures that they accept to answer this discussion. He also accuses them of not understanding the power of God. We've alluded to that. Okay, we've alluded to the idea that God has power in the first five books, the power of God to be able to bring life out of dust. So it's not unreasonable. Now, he also answers other doctrinal deficiencies that they have been. And this is where we, we uh, catch up from where we were last week is he makes the comment you do not you don't know scripture and you don't know the power of God verse 30 in the resurrection we neither marry nor are given in marriage but are as the angels of the God in heaven he is not saying we become angels okay, he's not saying that but we become like the angels or as the angels in what fashion in what area? Now remember what I've already given you for background information. Many of the people in that day believed that in the resurrection, what are we focused on? Sensual, physical appetites. That we're, we're involved with you know, eating, drinking, and, and, and sex. And he is coming back and saying, you don't even understand. That is not what the resurrection is all about. It is not about satisfying the flesh. Rather, we are going to be come and in our focus be like the angels. And so let's think this through. What, are the, what is the focus of the angels in heaven now? What is their job? What is their goal? What is their purpose? Okay, worship God, worship God, glorify God, do whatever God says. And so he is making it clear that we're going to have that different, that higher level of spiritual consciousness. We're going to have that higher level of goals because what happens is our sin nature is eradicated, so we're going to be focused on doing what, the, what is our major focus. Now, obviously, he is making another statement. Angels are real. Guys, angels are real. You know what's interesting? Are angels ever mentioned in the Torah? Do you remember any story where angels visit Abraham? Yeah, yeah, do you remember that? You know, do you remember what Jacob is wrestling with? Okay, so they deny it. They're, they say, we accept, we stand on the first five books, and yet they question some of it. Okay, they question miracles. Doesn't the first five books have some of the greatest miracles? Like the flood? The Red Sea? Yeah, and so um, there's more to it than all that. Those who, those who are resurrected, what Jesus is saying is we're going to have better bodies with higher aspirations. Eternity is not going to be about me satisfying my sensual, sexual desires. It's going to be more about focusing on God. Now, that doesn't mean, he doesn't mean we won't have interaction or memory, or, and it doesn't mean we won't acknowledge uh, any type of earthly re relationships. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't, by saying, whereas the angels, we get to heaven and we look and say, oh, have we ever met before? Who are you? It doesn't say that. That's not what he's, he's stating. In fact, there are other stories that Jesus gives that makes it just, that says just the opposite, that we remember our earthly relationships, but the focus will be different. Anyway, the people who are listening, we get through, uh, from the different gospels, here's the response. It says, the people are astonished. Okay, and they're amazed, okay, but they're not the only ones. It says as well, the Sadducees are put to silence. It says as well that one of the scribes who is the legal, the, the uh, lawyers, one of those who is, uh, the, he would have his PhD in theology. He responds and says, you have said well, wow, what an answer, okay. Uh, so Jesus, in his response, he's not only best of the leaders, he's kind of 
confounded the leaders, and he has shown himself to have so much more insight into scriptures that people kind of forgot about. That people were just, you know, they didn't draw from the scriptures. So obviously Jesus um, is going to, you know, become higher in standing for his understanding. And the leaders are understanding. They can't trap this guy. This guy answers from scriptures, knows scriptures better than anybody. And they're put to silence. Which is an amazing thought because the Sadducees you and the rabbis, usually they didn't go silent. They were like some of us. That you always have to have an answer. And especially, you always want to have what word? The last word, okay? And so that was very common in their discussion and in their way of thinking and how they would do stuff. And all of a sudden, they are just put to silence. Jesus has just bested them. Now, let's make some observations about life, okay? With what doctrine he's just revealed. There is a big difference between life in this age and life in the next. Jesus is making that clear. There's a big difference, okay? Some of the things we have in the next life, or we won't, let's rephrase that. Some of the things we have now that we won't have in the next life are bills, pain, okay? Conflict, that's all going to be gone. Politicians, okay? Those things will be gone. Taxes, they'll be gone. So there is a difference. Um, the resurrection he is making clear, he's, and this is an important doctrine for you and me to keep in mind. It's a reality, Jesus is saying this is really, really, really going to happen. I know that some people are critical of it and some people are skeptical of it, but it's a reality. It is founded upon two things, the promises and the power of God. That's what he says. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know God's power. The resurrection is based on the promises and the power of God, which makes it an absolutism. Okay? We will be resurrected. We will be in eternity. We will have bodies. When resurrected, we will enjoy better bodies, better abilities to be holy. That is the day that we're all looking for. Okay? When we are changed and you know, in that moment in the twinkly eye, we're changed and we will not struggle anymore. While we enjoy many things now, they will not be as meaningful in the resurrection. Okay, that's very hard for me to comprehend. It's hard for you at times to comprehend. But some of the things that really we gravitate towards, and they're not evil, they're not bad, but they do dominate our thinking, our homes, our cars, our jobs, our needs for our kids, our food, clothing, shelter. Okay, they're not evil. They're things we should focus on. But when it comes into the eternity, we will not have that same concern and we won't have that same focus on them as we do now. Things will change, which is hard for us to understand and accept with our finite understanding. Okay? Our relationships will change. We will have memories, but there's going to be a whole different focus of that at that time. After the resurrection, and this is an important thought, we are not going to miss out on anything. For those Christians who say, if I serve the Lord, oh my. If the rapture happens, oh my, I'm going to miss out on some experiences. After the resurrection, we will not miss out on anything. Rather, we will have the ability and time to be able to become to and experience the fullest of what God has planned for us. The ultimate so I'm, I'm, with that in mind, I'm thinking the Vikings one day will win the Super Bowl. Okay? It'll happen one day okay, in eternity. Uh, like Christ, we should not get caught up with the hypotheticals of the afterlife. This is an important, important thought for, you, for me. Okay? We shouldn't get caught up with the hypotheticals of the afterlife, but simply accept what God has chosen to reveal. Are there certain things we cannot answer about the eternity? They are. And if we want to get answers... Okay, which we do. We all do. We want to know a little bit more about it. That's what makes it popular when somebody says, I've had an experience in the afterlife and I can tell you what heaven is really like. And they can reveal 
stuff because we all have curiosities about what heaven is like. And so some child or some adult comes along, they write a book, they make a movie, and it becomes very appealing and it becomes very enticing to follow that. And yet I keep on going back to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writes, I know of a man who, whether in the spirit or out of the spirit, I don't know. But he died and went to heaven. Whether in the spirit or out of the spirit, I don't know. Paul is not, is not saying, hey, I'm going to tell you absolutely. But he says the things which he saw are beyond utterance. That under the inspiration of God, they're beyond telling and giving all the details. So how is it some child or some woman or some man in this modern day, they have so much more knowledge that Paul had written under inspiration of Scripture that these are things that they are, they are beyond description or beyond utterance at this point. We just have to wait until we see through the glass clearly. Until then, you know, things are kind of, you know, unknown. And God has left it that way. We see the importance of studying doctrine in a systematic fashion. What I mean by that is this, that there are doctrines like the resurrection that sometimes we have to look and say, okay, let's study the passages that deal with that topic. We're doing it on Wednesday nights. We're taking the Holy Spirit. It's not like we can take one singular text and say this is all that the Bible says. It's found in this one singular text. No, there are sometimes we have to study and do an overview of the Bible, and it's important to do that to get our answers. That's systematic theology. What does the Bible say about heaven? I'm going to look at a variety of verses. What does the Bible say about hell? I'm going to look at a variety. What does the Bible say about salvation? I'm going to look at a variety of texts, not just one. So there is a merit at times to be able to do systematic theological study, and Jesus was doing that with them. We too should accept the truths of the spiritual realm, even though we cannot see them or explain all of them. Just because we can't handle it or see it doesn't mean it's not true. I was reading a story about a young man, a Christian, young Christian, and going to a college, and he got to college, and his female professor was a real uh, critic of the Bible. And she was saying, you know, to the class, you know, we can't see God, but people believe in him. How can they believe in something they can't see? She was going, you know, they talk about uh, these miracles. How can you believe in something you can't see? And so one of the young men, new converts, he said, well, ma'am, you know, um, he says, I have a question for you. He said, you know, you've never seen your brain. And she took a, you know, a back. He said, I'm not saying you don't have a brain. He says, we could prove your brain by going and getting a CAT scan. But going and getting a CAT scan, proving that there's physical matter, it doesn't prove the most important part of your brain, ideas. You can't see your ideas. Does that mean they don't exist? Your thoughts don't exist because we can't see them? To say that there is no God or whatever just because we can't see him, and yet that's the high point of being able to think and to be able to reason and to rational, rationalize. And the woman said she had never thought about that before. It gave her pause. And that's a good, good idea you know, that the young man had in the sense of challenging people from a perspective that there are a lot of things we cannot see and put our handle on, like love. But you, do you know the results? Yes? You feel the results? Yes? No? You're supposed to say absolutely positively. I'm filled with it. Okay. We can't see the electricity, but we see the results. Okay. We can't see the heat, but we feel it. Okay. We can't see God, but do we know the results of God? Absolutely. So we have all that. The Bible has our answers. That's what Jesus is saying, is if we're going to answer and get into discussions, let's take people back to the Bible. 
Let's not quote some other authority, which was very Jewish in thinking, but let's go back to the Scriptures. Now, there is another question that comes up. It comes up right after that, and let's go to Mark. Mark gives us our better, our better description of this discussion. Mark chapter 12, right after that, we have Jesus answering, and some of the passages say, okay, they're stumped, they're dumbfounded, they don't know what to say. It, it says in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, and one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that Jesus had answered them well, he asked him, Okay, so what we've got is the Sadducees are silenced before they walk away. This scribe, this lawyer, this PhD in theology guy comes up. He asks Jesus a question. Now we find out that in comparing all the texts that he is asking in, a, in, in, uh, in the uh, idea that he wants to tempt Jesus. So his initial response here is not one of, okay, Jesus, I'm a real seeker. He is initially... Um, responding to them and asking them. In Matthew chapter 22, it says this, one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him. So he's coming with a, with a negative purpose, and he asks a simple question. What is the greatest command? Now, if somebody asked you, what would you say? What would be your response? Without reading the text, what would be your response? Okay, love the Lord thy God. If you're talking to a child, you'd say, what's the greatest command? Most kids who are raised in a Christian home, they think it's, you know, honor your, obey your parents, okay? Because that's the one they hear a lot. So Jesus is answering. Now, just to put it in perspective, people, okay? Here, we, we've got to understand where he's coming from. In the Old Testament, okay, or in this era, the Old Testament that they're using, and this is a Pharisee, somebody in the law who would be studying more on top, they have lots of laws. They have lots of commands. Let me see if I can put it up this way. The Pharisee stated that there were some 248 positive commands, 365 prohibitions. So we got some 613 different commands. It was very common for them. There is writings that indicate this. The debate was which is the best or the greatest command. This question does not come out of the blue. This question is not originating with this man. This is a theological debate that has been written about for several generations by the time it comes up, and it is a very big debate amongst the Pharisees. So this guy coming to tempt is bringing up a conflict that has been around for a while, that has, been, that has divided the peoples for quite a while, and he's asking Jesus to give an answer. The question is basically challenging Jesus to say, do you have greater insight than all of our great scholars? You know, how smart are you? You just told us that we don't understand what. What did you just say in the last, in the last question? You don't understand scriptures. Well, if you think you understand it so much better, here's a debate that none of our scholars have been able to settle. I'm going to ask you the question. What's the greatest command? So in that sense, that's the temptation coming from uh, uh, of the realm of a lot of debate over this very question. Jesus is going to respond. Jesus is going to quote, and, he, and you all know the answer that Jesus gives, but he basically says the first of all commandments, verse 29 of Mark 12, the first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Okay, that is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is right around the repeat of the entire Ten Commandments. It is the first text that the parents would teach children in the Jewish culture. It is their primary text that they would use in, in training their children. Because, by the way, in the next few verses it goes on after it says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. You shall teach these commands, bind them. You shall talk about them when you rise up, when you 
sit down, when you lay down, when you eat at the table, this is the text he's quoting, okay, where he gets that from. And so he's basically saying very simply, you, are, you know, this is our primary duty, love the Lord. Then he adds a second command. Do you see where he's done? Okay, now he uses another text, and he's quoting from the book of Leviticus, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, with all thy strength. And the second is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is no other greater commandment than these. And so he puts these two together, so we know from the mouth of Jesus, these are the two greatest commands. So he solved their theological debate for years and years and years. Now, here's the thing that we can do. We can take the Ten Commandments, which are a summary of all the different law. Can you divide the Ten Commandments into these two sections? Yes. The first, the first few commandments deal with God, okay? Not, uh, not taking His name in vain, no other gods, worshiping Him. And then all the other commands deal with people relationships, okay? And dealing with people, honoring your parents, not, not being envious, uh, not killing, not lying. They all deal with them. So he's, he's taken and he summarized all the commands down from 10 down to 2. And he's made it very clear. And uh, in the New Testament, here's where we have the advantage. When Paul is writing his epistles and expanding upon it, he says this is the fulfillment of the law. He makes it very clear. Loving the Lord, loving others is the fulfillment. Based upon the words of Jesus or under the inspiration of Scripture or both, he's going to fulfill that. So Jesus succinctly summarized the entire Old Testament for these guys with just two statements. Clearly, clearly Jesus has just outshone without hesitation all the scholars for the last few couple generations that have been debating this. Jesus just settled the issue whatsoever. So this guy who's coming to tempt him to say, are you smarter than all of our scholars? This guy who is a scholar, who's got the PhD ascribed, what's his reaction? When he hears how Jesus so quickly and so beautifully and so succinctly puts it all together, what's his reaction? The scribe said unto him, wow, well, master, you have said the truth. There is one God, there is none other. To love him with all the heart, the understanding, the soul, the strength, to love his, your neighbor as yourself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Does this guy know his Old Testament? He just proved it. He just proved it. Because hasn't God said in the Old Testament, you know, what do you require of me, Micah? What do you require of me? You re I require, you know, Honor, obedience, holiness, rather than your sacrifices, your rituals. You can bring me 10,000 offerings. It doesn't mean anything if your heart's not right. And so they know their Bible. They know, and if he's, and if he's a half-honest man, he's got to admit, Jesus just hit it on the head. Jesus just knocked it out of the ballpark. Jesus, you know, what, what, did, what, did, what did God say to their king, you know, Saul? What did God say to him? Obedience is better than sacrifices, okay? And so they, he just, you know, this is it. The man concurs with Jesus' theology. He says, you are right, Jesus. You hit it on the head. This man seems to have a change of heart, change of attitude about Jesus. Because verse 34, Jesus, now it says in Matthew, he was tempting. Now Jesus responds, and it says, when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, okay? I don't know what you have, but the word is literally, he answered with wisdom. 
He answered, not just with, with good trivia. This man answers, not with just knowledge. He answered with real understanding, discernment. He answered wisely. Jesus uh, is impressed, and uh, Jesus is going to say to the man who is standing there, he's going to say to him, wow, you're not that far from the kingdom of heaven. So this man reveals. There's a, there's a, there are some of these Jewish leaders who do have an honest bone in their body that are going to say, okay, we, can't, we, we got to admit he's right. We've got to admit that. And some of them will get saved in the book of Acts because they're, they're understanding who Jesus is. And Jesus says you're not far from the kingdom of God. Here's the thought, okay? What he's basically saying to them is even though you agree with me, agreeing with my theology is not enough. Now, would you agree? Is that true? Just having a creed, just saying the Apostles' Creed, is that enough to get somebody to heaven? No, no, no. In fact, do you remember a sermon Jesus preached? And as he wraps it up, he says, there are going to be some people who do believe in me, who even pray to me, who even did religious things. But depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, or those who do your own thing, because I never... Yeah, do you remember that? He makes that comment in Matthew chapter 7, verses, what is it, 22, 23, some of there. And so the man agrees with Jesus, but he needs to accept Jesus more than just theology. He's got to have more than an idea that, yes, you are the Son of God. He's got to believe. He's got to accept him. And so Jesus is basically saying, you're like, you know, you're like that hand grenade or horseshoes. You're all so close, but you haven't hit the ringer. You got to get on. And so he's got to come to that point. Let's make some observations. Jesus' standard of ethics for you and me are very simple. Love God, love others. That's it, okay? <laughs> I, I make it sound like it's so simple. Carrying this out is huge, is it not? Okay, every day, your challenge, are you not with both of these? But they're the essence of it. Per Jesus, properly relating to God is properly relating to people. This is the rub for us. They are inseparable in their impact on one another. If I am not right with other people, I am not right with God. Okay, if Deb and I are not right with each other, will it hinder my prayer life in particular? First Peter chapter 3, absolutely. What does he say? If you have a conflict with somebody and you come to worship, what are you supposed to do? Do you remember Matthew 5? Leave your gift, go be reconciled, and then what? Then come back. So, he, you know, this isn't new for Jesus. Jesus has made this clear on multiple occasions that you and I cannot pretend church, pretend relationship with God, and hang, and hang on to bitterness or anger or conflicts with others. Genuine love for God and others is better than any religious ritual or activity that we can be involved in. Or, should we say, you know, theological study. Okay, this guy was your theological study. Didn't mean anything if you didn't love God, love others. It is good to examine what we consider to be the most important part of our Christianity. This question isn't a bad question. In fact, I think it's a wise question that maybe we should ask ourselves every so often. What do you consider to be the most important thing in your life? What is the most important duty you have for God, towards God? So it's something that, that you and I should ask, and we probably should pause enough to say, how would you answer this? Hopefully we answer this the way that we live. That our life before our kids, our life before our spouse, our neighbors, is consistent with our theology of saying, love God, love others. And we're consistent with that. Let me go a little bit further. Access to heaven is not based upon what we know or agree with a theological statement, which a lot of us came out of different churches that had creeds and statements, yay? Theological 
stuff that we were supposed to say, that's not enough, okay? I remember, I don't know about you do, you, do any of you remember quoting the Apostles' Creed in worship services? Yes? Okay. And I knew that stuff, but is there a difference between knowing, you know, six-inch, 12-inch knowing? <coughs> yeah, big time. Being close to salvation in heaven is not good enough because he says you are not far from the kingdom, but the reality is he still is. He's still far. He's from the kingdom. Even though he's close to it and close to understanding, there still is a distance. You need to be born again or you not be allowed in. That's the bottom line. Now, right after that, watch what Jesus does. <coughs> We're in Mark 12. Jesus turns the table. Mark 12. Now, this is a first. This is, so this is very, very impacting. Verse 35. Uh, let's do verse 34. He, the man says, uh, Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Now, in Mark 12, verse 34, no man after that did what? Nobody. Nobody is going to ask any more questions. Why not? If you were standing there, I'm not to be silly, but if you were standing there, why wouldn't you ask another question? Yeah, this, everybody smarter than me has just been put... To, to silence. Yes? I mean, what would your fear be? I say or ask something really stupid. Really, uh, it's kind of looked that way already. Our leaders have asked really stupid questions. So, you know, probably for, for, you know, if you're like me, I wouldn't have any brilliant question to ask. He's just kind of done it all and said, said it all. So nobody's going to ask Jesus a question. Jesus then turns the table. Now, I want to remind you of something. The very first question, let's go back to the first question. What was it? Do you remember the very, this whole, this, this huge open public debate that is so important that all the Gospels record it? It is an important discussion. What was their very first question? Comes from the Pharisees. They asked Jesus. What was it? Who gave you the authority? I think he's coming all the way around to that. I think by his answer now, he is going to reveal what, by what authority he is here and doing this. Here's why, okay? He asks them a question. Now he turns the tables and he says, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? Okay, for David himself said by the Holy Ghost, by the way, what has he just done? He, uh, do, do you know what he's quoting when he says, for David himself said by? What does your Bible indicate? He's quoting some Bible. Do, do you know where? Anybody have footnotes? Okay, he's, he's coming out of Psalm 110, and he's quoting it, and he is saying, David wrote it. Now, look at verse 30. Not only did David write it, what has Jesus just done with Old Testament? This is a theological discussion, okay? David said this by what, or by who? By the Holy Spirit. What does that tell you that Jesus has just done? What has he done with Psalms as far as a doctrinal truth? He's just claimed Psalms is inspired by God. It's very important. It's very, he's just confirmed this for you and me. This is important doctrine. How do we know Psalms belongs in the Bible? Jesus said so. Jesus said it's inspired. He just confirmed that. So there he says, how does David say this? You know, whose son is, you know, is he, da-da-da-da-da-da. And they're listening, they're talking. 
And uh, what's going to happen here is the question, I'm going to, let me build on this for a second time. Who do you think Christ is? How is he called a son by David, the father? The immediate response is basically in Matthew's, you know, whose son is, is he? And they say he's the son of David. And that's where he goes on and he says, that's true. The Messiah is the son of David. Now we have that from the Old Testament. Lots of Old Testament predicts son of David will come to the throne. He'll be the Messiah. Here's where it gets interesting. Okay, Jesus is basically asking them this. And you compare your different gospels, you get it. Jesus is saying, how can David call him his son and his Lord? Calling somebody your son and your Lord is a contradiction in ancient Near East cultures. I would never, in an ancient Near East culture, I would never call Tony my Lord. Why not? Because he's my son. And what did you say? Somebody said it. Older. I'm older. Okay. In that culture, you do, you, you know, there's an elevation here of age and authority. And so this is very important in this culture. Now, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110. It was commonly accepted that this was a messianic reference, even in the Jewish culture, that they would understand this. So the song is obviously, we already mentioned, it's inspired by God. And in that conversation, by the way, Psalm 110 is quoted the most of any of the, uh, any of the Psalms in the New Testament. And it's quoted in Hebrews as well, where in this text that Jesus is referring to, in Hebrews points out it is Lord Adonai calling Lord Yahweh and that Jesus is given the title of Yahweh and that's the argument in Hebrews that Jesus is called Yahweh which means if Jesus is called Yahweh by God himself Jesus is God okay that's the argument out of Hebrews uh, with the same text Jesus is going to make a different argument out of it how is it that David calls his son his descendant master in other words David is thinking that one of his offspring is going to be better or is greater than he is which is really strange and this is where he's going in a patriarchal system the the dads are always superior it's just it's a bottom line dads are superior to sons no matter what that's patriarchal also, it was a monarchical system. The king would not, would, would not say to the son, you're my king. Now, he might give him co-regency, but even if they were co-regents, who's the superior? Dad, okay? And why would David, the king, be calling some, some offspring his master? Who is bigger and better and more powerful than David in the Old Testament time that he lived? Nobody but God, okay? So taking that and understanding their thought pattern, David is saying that the Messiah, his offspring, is greater than he is. That's an amazing statement. That's what Jesus is building on. How is David saying that the Messiah is better than him when he's the king, when he's the superior? There's only one person bigger than David. Who is it? It's God. What is he implying, therefore, about his offspring? He's God. He is, David is implying humanity and deity being meshed together. So Jesus is going back to that whole discussion and making it clear that he, David is recognizing that his offspring is God in the flesh. Okay, that's his discussion. That's a very important discussion. Now, now that makes sense theologically. You understand that. Now, here's where it comes to be interesting. That's, all of us would say it makes sense, makes sense, makes sense to them. In essence, 
He's saying that David, and by the way, you're sitting here, you're hearing this. David is one of your heroes. David is considered one of your scholars. And even your king, your hero, your legendary David says, I would submit to him. Your legendary hero David saying, I understand that he is God in the flesh. And so it takes us back to, by the way, whose authority are you speaking? I'm speaking because basically what Jesus is claiming. Oh, wait, wait, hold it, hold it, hold it. Just pause for a second. On Sunday, what did the crowds call Jesus? The son of the son of the highest, yes. But when they were cheering from a human perspective, they multiplied multiple times, it says, they called him the son of David. Okay, so you're putting this all together that what's being, you know, what's being stated here is David was willing to submit to this God-man, Messiah, that would be his offspring. Okay, and they have just called Jesus the son of David. The crowds did, and Jesus had told them, if these people be silenced, what's going to cry out? The rocks would cry out. So basically, Jesus is saying, since I own this title, son of David, then why don't you submit to me the way David would have submitted to me? David, your legendary king, understands I am God in the flesh. Your legendary king would bow down and said he would, he would honor me as his Lord. You who claim to be the offspring of David, who claim that David was your example, then why don't you follow his example? I come with the authority and the stamp of approval of what great man that you look up to? King David. Because I am coming as God in the flesh. It is just, it's a stunning comment. And it, by the way, there's just so much here that Jesus is pointing out. He's saying that I accept the Psalms. They're authenticated. I defend my, my discussion based on Bible truth. He is giving a clear, concise, Bible-based support for his claim as Messiah and for his deity. He saw consistency. He refers to this passage, which, by the way, uses Yahweh and, uh, in reference to Jesus, which is uh, one of those Old Testament passages that clearly imply that there is a Trinitarian concept in Scripture, at least two in this text. And so he is using this passage, he's saying this comment, and they are just, they've been put to silence already. Now he's saying, okay, you're not following through with what you claim. You claim to be listeners and disciples of King David. Well, David would have loved to have seen my day. And when David talked about it, he elevated me. Why don't you elevate me? Just a phenomenal discussion. Now from there, watch what he does. Mark chapter 12. Right after he says that, it says verse 37, it says, David therefore called himself calls him Lord, whence he is then his son. And the common people, they got it. They heard him gladly. And Jesus then turns on who? Who does he publicly start going after? the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and he introduces his most stunning condemnations of the leaders because of their corruption, their lack of intelligence, their denying the scriptures and the power of God. We'll pick up there where all of a sudden he says, beware of these guys. We'll do that next week.